Section 13 of The Waning of the Middle Ages, a study of the forms of life, thought, and art in France and the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andrew M. Byron. The Waning of the Middle Ages by Johann Huizinga. Translated by Frederick Jan Hopman. Section 13. The Vision of Death No other epoch has laid so much stress as the expiring Middle Ages on the thought of death. An everlasting call of memento mori resounds through life. Denis the Carthusian, in his Directory of the Life of Nobles, exhorts them, and when going to bed at night he should consider how, just as he now lies down himself, soon strange hands will lay his body in the grave. In earlier times, too, religion had insisted on the constant thought of death, but the pious treatises of these ages only reached those who had already turned away from the world. Since the thirteenth century, the popular preaching of the mendicant orders had made the eternal admonition to remember death swell into a somber chorus ringing throughout the world. Towards the 15th century, a new means of inculcating the awful thought into all minds was added to the words of the preacher, namely the popular woodcut. Now these two means of expression, sermons and woodcuts, both addressing themselves to the multitude and limited to crude effects, could only represent death in a simple and striking form. All that the meditations on death of the monks of yore had produced was now condensed into a very primitive image. This vivid image, continually impressed upon all minds, had hardly assimilated more than a single element of the great complex of ideas relating to death, namely the sense of the perishable nature of all things. It would seem, at times, as if the soul of the declining Middle Ages only succeeded in seeing death under this aspect. The endless complaint of the frailty of all earthly glory was sung to various melodies. Three motifs may be distinguished. The first is expressed by the question, where are now all those who once filled the world with their splendor? The second motif dwells on the frightful spectacle of human beauty gone to decay. The third is the death dance, death dragging along men of all conditions and ages. Compared with the two others, the first of these themes is but a graceful and elegiac sigh. After having taken shape in Greek poetry, it was adopted by the fathers and pervaded the literature of all Christendom, and that of Islam also. Byron, too, used it in Don Juan. The Middle Ages cultivated it with special predilection. We find it in the heavy rhythm of the erudite poetry of the 12th century. Et ubi gloria nunc Babylonia? Nunc ubi dirus nabugodonosor et dariae vigor ileque sirus? Nunc ubi regulus, aut ubi romulus, aut ubi remus? Stat rosa pristina nomine, nomina nuda tenemus. Footnote. Where is now your glory, Babylon? Where is now the terrible Nebuchadnezzar? 
and strong Darius and the famous Cyrus. Where is now Regulus, or where Romulus, or where Remus? The rose of yore is but a name. Mere names are left to us. End footnote. Franciscan poetry of the 13th century, if the following lines are not of an older date, still preserves an echo of these rhyming hexameters. Dic ubi Salomon, olim tam nobilis vel Samson ubi est, dux invincibilis, et pulcher Absalon, vultu mirabilis, aut dulcis Jonatas, multum amabilis. Footnote. Say, where is Solomon once so noble? Or Samson, where is he, the invincible chief, and fair Absalom of the wonderful face? Or sweet Jonathan, the most amiable? End footnote. Deschamps composed at least four of his ballads on this theme. Gerson worked it out in a sermon, Denis the Carthusian, in his treatise De Quatuor Hominum Novissimus, on the four last things of man. Chastelin, in a long poem entitled Le Pas de la Mort. Olivier de la Marche, in his Parement et Triomphe des Dames, composed on it a lament over all the princesses who died in his time. Villon gives it a new accent of soft tenderness in his Ballade des Dames du Temps Jadis, with the refrain Mais où sont les neiges d'antan? And then he sprinkles it with irony in the Ballad of the Lords by adding to the series of kings, popes, and princes of his time the words Hélas, il est bon roi d'Espagne, duquel je ne sais pas le nom. Footnote Alas, and the good king of Spain whose name I do not know. End footnote However, the wistfulness of remembrance and the thought of frailty in itself do not satisfy the need of expressing, with violence, the shudder caused by death. The medieval soul demands a more concrete embodiment of the perishable, that of the putrefying corpse. Aesthetic meditation had, in all ages, dwelt on dust and worms. The treatises on the contempt of the world had, long since, evoked all the horrors of decomposition, but it is only toward the end of the 14th century that pictorial art in its turn seizes upon this motif, to render the horrible details of decomposition a realistic force of expression was required, to which painting and sculpture only attained towards 1400. At the same time, the motif spread from ecclesiastical to popular literature. Until far into the 16th century, tombs are adorned with hideous images of a naked corpse with clenched hands and rigid feet, gaping mouth and bowels crawling with worms. The imagination of those times relished these horrors without ever looking one stage further to see how corruption perishes in its turn and flowers grow where it lay. A thought which so strongly attaches to the earthly side of death can hardly be called truly pious. It would rather seem a kind of spasmodic reaction against an excessive sensuality. In exhibiting the horrors awaiting all human beauty, 
already lurking below the surface of corporeal charms these preachers of contempt for the world express indeed a very materialistic sentiment namely that all beauty and all happiness are worthless because they are bound to end soon renunciation founded on disgust does not spring from christian wisdom it is noteworthy that the pious exhortations to think of death and the profane exhortations to make the most of youths almost meet a painting in the monastery of the celestines at avignon now destroyed attributed by tradition to the founder king rené himself represented the body of a dead woman standing enveloped in a shroud with her head dressed and worms gnawing her bowels in the inscription at the foot of the picture the first lines read une fois sur toute femme belle mais par la mort suis devenue telle ma chère histoire très belle fraîche et tendre or est-elle toute tournée en cendre mon corps histoire très plaisant et très jeune je me soulevais souvent vestir du soir or androi fault que toute nu je sois fourré histoire du gris et du menu vert en grand palais me logeois à mon veuil or suis logé en ce petit cercueil ma chambre histoire des beaux tapis ornés aurait d'araigne ma force environnée footnote once i was beautiful above all women but by death i became like this my flesh was very beautiful fresh and soft now it is altogether turned to ashes my body was very pleasing and very pretty i used frequently to dress in silk now i must rightly be quite nude i was dressed in grey fur and miniver i lived in a great palace as i wished now i am lodged in this little coffin my room was adorned with fine tapestry now my grave is enveloped by cobwebs End footnote. here the memento mori still predominates it tends imperceptibly to change into the quite worldly complaint of the woman who sees her charms fade as in the following lines from the parlement et triomphe des dames by olivier de la marche c'est du regard c'est du fait représente pensez bien ils perdront leur clarté nez et sourcils la bouche de le prince se pourriront si vous vivez le droit cours de nature dont six cent ans et un bien grand nombre votre boutique changera en les durs votre santé en maladie obscure et ne ferait en ces mondes que encombre ce fille avait vous lui serez en ombre celle sera recusée à demander et de chasquant la mère abandonnée footnote these sweet looks these eyes made for pleasance remember they will lose their lustre nose and eyelashes the eloquent mouth will putrefy if you live your natural lifetime of which sixty years is a great deal your beauty will change into ugliness your health into obscure malady and you will only be in the way here below if you have a daughter you will be a shadow to her 
she will be in request and asked for, and the mother will be abandoned by all. End footnote. All pious purpose has disappeared in the ballads of Villon, where the old courtesan, la belle Elmière, calls to mind her irresistible beauty of former times, and is deeply grieved at its sad decline. Que devenus ces fronts polis, ces chevaux blancs, sourcils voûtis, grand entrée, les regards jolis, dont prénois les plus subtils, ces beaux nez droits, grand nez petits, ces petits joints oreilles, menton fourchu, clair vie tractile, et ces belles lèvres vermeilles, les fronts ridés, les chevaux gris. Les sourcils, les yeux éteints. Footnote: What has become of this smooth forehead, fair hair, curving eyelashes, large space between the eyes, pretty looks, wherewith I caught the most subtle ones, that fine straight nose, neither large nor small, these tiny ears close to the head, the dimpled chin, well-shaped bright face. And those beautiful vermilion lips? The forehead wrinkled, hair gray, the eyelashes come off, lackluster eyes. End footnote. This inability to free oneself from the attachment to matter manifests itself in yet other forms. A result of the same sentiment is to be found in the extreme importance ascribed in the Middle Ages to the fact that the bodies of certain saints had never decayed, that of Saint Rosa of Viterbo, for example. The assumption of the Holy Virgin exempting her body from earthly corruption was on that account regarded as the most precious of all graces. On various occasions, attempts were made to retard decomposition. The features of the corpse of Pierre de Luxembourg were touched up with paint to preserve them intact until the burial. The body of a heretic preacher of the sect of Turpulins, who died in prison before the sentence was passed, was preserved in lime for a fortnight that it might be burned at the same time with a living heretical woman. The importance attached to being buried in the soil of one's own country gave rise to usages which the church had to interdict strictly as being contrary to the Christian religion. In the 12th and 13th centuries, when a prince or a person of rank died far from his country, the body was often cut up and boiled so as to extract the bones which were sent home in a chest, whereas the rest was interred, not without ceremony, however, on the spot. Emperors, kings, and bishops have undergone this strange operation. Pope Boniface VIII forbade it as detestande feritatus abusus quam ex quondam more horribuli nonuli fideles improvide prosecuntur. Footnote. An abuse of abominable savagery practiced by some of the faithful in a horrible way and inconsiderately. End footnote. Yet his successors sometimes granted dispensations. Numbers of Englishmen who fell in France in the Hundred Years' War enjoyed this privilege, notably Edward of York and the Earl of Suffolk, who died at Agincourt, Henry V himself, William Glasdale, who perished at Orléans at the time of its relief, a nephew of Sir John Falstolf, and others.
At the close of the Middle Ages, the whole vision of death may be summed up in the word macabre in its modern meaning. Of course, this meaning is the outcome of a long process, but the sentiment it embodies of something gruesome and dismal is precisely the conception of death which arose during the last centuries of the Middle Ages. This bizarre word appeared in French in the 14th century under the form macabre, and whatever may be its etymology as a proper name. A line of the poet Jean Lefebvre, Je fis de macabre la danse, which may be dated 1376, remains the birth certificate of the word for us. Toward 1400, the conception of death in art and literature took a spectral and fantastic shape. A new and vivid shudder was added to the great primitive horror of death. The macabre vision arose from deep psychological strata of fear. Religious thought at once reduced it to a means of moral exhortation. As such, it was a great cultural idea, till in its turn it went out of fashion, lingering on in epitaphs and symbols in village cemeteries. The idea of the death dance is the central point of a whole group of connected conceptions. The priority belongs to the motif of the three dead and three living men, which is found in French literature from the 13th century onward. Three young noblemen suddenly meet three hideous dead men who tell them of their past grandeur and warn them of their own near end. Art soon took hold of this suggestive theme. We can see it still in the striking frescoes of the Campo Santo of Pisa. The sculpture of the portal of the Church of the Innocents at Paris, which the Duke of Berry had carved in 1408, but which has not been preserved, represented the same subject. Miniature painting and woodcuts spread it broadcast. The theme of the three dead and three living men connects the horrible motif of putrefaction with that of the death dance. This theme, too, seems to have originated in France, but it is unknown whether the pictorial representation preceded the scenic or reverse. The thesis of Monsieur Emile Mal, according to which the sculptural and pictorial motifs of the 15th century were supposed, as a rule, to be derived from dramatic representations, has not been able to keep its ground on critical examination. It may be, however, that we should make an exception in favor of the death dance. Anyhow, the dance of the dead has been acted as well as painted and engraved. The Duke of Burgundy had it performed at his mansion in Bruges in 1449. If we could form an idea of the effect produced by such a dance, with vague lights and shadows gliding over the moving figures, we should, no doubt, be better able to understand the horror inspired by the subject than we are by the aid of pictures of Guillaume Marchand or Holbein. The woodcuts with which the Parisian printer Guillaume Marchand ornamented the first edition of the Danse Macabre in 1485 were, very probably, imitated from the most celebrated of these painted death dances, namely that which, since 1424, covered the walls of the cloister of the Churchyard of the Innocents at Paris. The stanzas printed by Marchand were those written under these mural paintings. Perhaps they even hail back to the lost poetry of Jean Lefebvre, who, in his turn, seems to have followed a Latin model. 
The woodcuts of 1485 can give but a feeble impression of the paintings of the innocents, of which they are not exact copies as these costumes prove. To have a notion of the effect of these frescoes, one should rather look at the mural paintings of the church of La Chaise-Dieu, where the unfinished condition of the work heightens the spectral effect. The dancing person, whom we see coming back forty times to lead away the living, originally does not represent death itself, but a corpse, the living man such as he will presently be. In the stanzas, the dancer is called the dead man, or the dead woman. It is a dance of the dead, and not of death. The researches of Monsieur Guédéon-Huet have made it probable that the primitive subject was a roundabout dance of dead people, come forth from their graves, a theme of which Goethe revived in his Totentanz. The indefatigable dancer is the living man himself in his future shape, a frightful double of his person. It is yourself, said the horrible vision to each of the spectators. It is only towards the end of the century that the figure of the greatest dancer, of a corpse with hollow and fleshless body, becomes a skeleton, as Holbein depicts it. Death in person has then replaced the individual dead man. While it reminded the spectators of the frailty and the vanity of earthly things, the death dance at the same time preached social equality as the Middle Ages understood it, death leveling the various ranks and professions. At first, only men appeared in the picture. The success of his publication, however, suggested to Guyot the idea of a dance macabre of women. Marshal d'Auvergne wrote the poetry. An unknown artist, without equaling his model, completed the picture by a series of feminine figures dragged along by a corpse. Now, it was impossible to enumerate forty dignities and professions of women. After the queen, the abbess, the nun, the saleswoman, the nurse, and a few others, it was necessary to fall back on the different states of feminine life. The virgin, the beloved, the bride, the woman newly married, the woman with child. And here the sensual note reappears, to which we referred above. In lamenting the frailty of the lives of women, it is still the briefness of joy that is deplored, and with the grave tone of the memento mori is mixed the regret for lost beauty. Nothing betrays more clearly the excessive fear of death felt in the Middle Ages than the popular belief, then widely spread, according to which Lazarus, after his resurrection, lived in continual misery and horror at the thought that he should have again to pass through the gate of death. If the just had so much to fear, how could the sinner soothe himself? And then what motif was more poignant than the calling up of the agony of death? It appeared under two traditional forms, the Ars Moriendi and the Cator Hominum Novissima, that is, the four last experiences awaiting a man of which death was the first. These two subjects were largely propagated in the 15th century by the printing press and by engravings. The art of dying, as well as the last four things, comprised a description of the agony of death, in which it is easy to recognize a model supplied by the ecclesiastical literature of former centuries. Chastelain, in a long-winded poem, La Part de la Mort, has assembled all the above motifs. He gives successively the image of putrefaction, the lament, 
Where are the great ones of the earth? An outline of the death dance and the art of dying. Being prolix and heavy, he needs a great many lines to express what Villon presents in half a stanza. But in comparing them, we recognize their common model. Chastelain writes, Il n'a membre ne facture qui ne sent sa pourecture avant que l'esprit soit heure, le cœur qui va crever au cœur, pour ses soulièves la poitrine qui se va joindre à son échine. La face est teinte et pâlie et les yeux très liés en la teste. La parole lui est faillée car la langue au palais se lie. Les poux tressaux et si alette. Les os déjoindant à tous les, ils n'annèrent corrompre ne tendent. Footnote. There is not a limb nor a form which does not smell of putrefaction. Before the soul is outside, the heart of which wants to burst in the body raises and lifts the chest, which nearly touches the backbone. The face is discolored and pale, and the eyes veiled in the head. Speech fails him, for the tongue cleaves to the palate. The pulse trembles, and he pants. The bones are disjointed on all sides. There is not a tendon which does not stretch as to burst. End footnote. And Villon. La mort le fait frémir, pâlir, le nez courbert, le vin tendre, le crôle l'enflaire, la chair moyre, joint des nerfs, croise très tendre. Footnote. Death makes him shudder and turn pale, the nose to curve, the veins to swell, the neck to inflate, the flesh to soften, joints and tendons to grow and swell. End footnote. And again the sensual thought mingles with it. Cœur féminine, qui tente et tendre, poli, suf, si précieux, t'effoldra, il est mon attendre. Oui. Ou tout vif à l'air essieux. Footnote. O female body, which is so soft, smooth, suave, precious, do these evils await you? Yes, or you must go to heaven quite alive. End footnote. Nowhere else were all the images tending to evoke the horror of death assembled so strikingly as in the churchyard of the innocents at Paris. There, the medieval soul, fond of a religious shudder, could take its fill of the horrible. Above all other saints, the remembrance of the saints of that spot, and of their bloody and pitiful martyrdom, was fitted to awake the crude compassion which was dear to the epoch. The 15th century honored the holy innocents with a special veneration. Louis XI presented to the church a whole innocent encased in a crystal shrine. The cemetery was preferred to every other place of burial. A bishop of Paris had a little of the earth of the churchyard of the innocents put into his grave as he could not be laid there. The poor and the rich were interred without distinction. They did not rest there long, for the cemetery was used so much, twenty parishes having a rite of burial there, that it was necessary, in order to make room, to dig up the bones and sell the tombstones after a very short time. It was believed that in this earth a human body was decomposed to the bone in nine days.
Skulls and bones were heaped up in charnel houses along the cloisters, enclosing the ground on three sides, and lay there open to the eye by thousands, preaching to all the lesson of equality. The noble Boussisot, among others, had contributed to this construction of these fine charnel houses. Under the cloisters, the death dance exhibited its images and its stanzas. No place was better suited to the simian figure of grinning death, dragging along pope and emperor, monk and fool. The Duke of Berry, who wished to be buried there, had the history of the three dead and the three living men carved at the portal of the church. A century later, this exhibition of funeral symbols was completed by a large statue of death, now in the Louvre, and the only remnant of it all. Such was the place which the Parisians of the 15th century frequented as a sort of lugubrious counterpart of the Palais Royal of 1789. Day after day, crowds of people walked under the cloisters looking at the figures and reading the simple verses which reminded them of the approaching end. In spite of the incessant burials and exhumations going on there, it was a public lounge and a rendezvous. Shops were established before the charnel houses, and prostitutes strolled under the cloisters. A female recluse was immured on one of the sides of the church. Friars came to preach, and processions were drawn up there. A procession of children only, 12,500 strong, thinks the burgher of Paris, assembled there with tapers in their hands to carry an innocent to Notre-Dame and back to the churchyard. Even feasts were given there. To such an extent had the horrible become familiar. The desire to invent a visible image of all that appertained to death entailed the neglecting of all those aspects of it which were not suited to direct representation. Thus the cruder conceptions of death, and these only, impressed themselves continually on the minds. The macabre vision does not represent the emotions of tenderness or of consolation. The elegiac note is wanting altogether. At bottom, the macabre sentiment is self-seeking and earthly. It is hardly the absence of the departed dear ones that is deplored. It is the fear of one's own death, and this only, seen as the worst of evils. Neither the conception of death, the consoler, nor that of rest long wished for, of the end of suffering, of the task performed or interrupted, have a share in the funeral sentiment of that epoch. The soul of the Middle Ages did not know the divine depth of sorrow, or rather it knew it only in connection with the passion of Christ. In all these somber lamentations about death, the accents of the true tenderness are extremely rare. They could, however, hardly be wanting in relation to the death of children. And indeed, Marshal d'Auvergne, in his death dance of women, makes the little girl, when led away by death, say to her mother, Take good care of my doll, my knuckle bones, and my fine dress. But this touching note is only heard exceptionally. The literature of the epoch knew child life so little. When Antoine de la Salle, in Le Reconfort de Madame Dufresne, wishes to console a mother for the death of her twelve-year-old son, he can think of nothing better than citing a still more cruel loss the heart-rending case of a boy given as a hostage and put to death. To overcome grief, the only advice he can offer is to abstain from all earthly attachments. A doctrinaire and dry consolation? La Salle, however, adds a second short story. 
It is a version of the popular tale of the dead child who came back to beg its mother to weep no more that its shroud might be dry. And here, suddenly, from this simple story, not of his own invention, there arises a poetical tenderness and beneficent wisdom which we look for in vain in the thousands of voices repeating in various tones the awful memento mori. Folk tale and folk song, no doubt, in these ages preserved many sentiments which higher literature hardly knew. The dominant thought, as expressed in the literature, both ecclesiastical and lay, of that period, hardly knew anything with regard to death but these two extremes, lamentation about the briefness of all earthly glory, and jubilation over the salvation of the soul. All that lay between, pity, resignation, longing, consolation, remained unexpressed and was, so to say, absorbed by the too much accentuated and too vivid representation of death hideous and threatening. Living emotion stiffens amid the abused imagery of skeletons and worms. End of section 13